0: are going to be in Luke's gospel this morning. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and turn to the gospel of Luke. The tech team here was so incredibly gracious. I told them I didn't know what I was going to teach on until I got here. I had several messages prepared and I got to listen to a lot of Pastor Sam's last series, uh, What to to Do When It Does. And so I just wanted to be in the slipstream of what Holy Spirit is already doing in this house. I know I'm a guest. The last thing I want to do is distract y'all. And so I just prayed a lot about it last night. And as we were waiting, you know, there was a marathon this morning. so I just got heaps of conviction as I was eating bacon, watching the marathoners Run past. There's something about a skinny person in little shorts bad to me. Um, but anyway, as I was praying watching the marathoners, I just, this message kind of percolated up. And I, I hope it's just kind of a good caboose on what God has been doing through Pastor Sam in this last series that was so incredible about good God even when our lives feel like they're anything, but our God is always good. We can't always see around the corner of our circumstances. And so sometimes theodicy, and that's that biblical truism that our God is always good. No matter what we're walking through, our God is always always good from the very beginning of the story when sometimes he's painted as a unibrow dictator and we see the god of the old testament as an angry god he's not if you get the the story of scripture it's not a rule book it's not a textbook it's a love story at its core if you you get biblical narrative you'll begin to see even in the beginning god has always been in the process of restoring our inherent dignity as Imago Day. He's always been turning us toward Jesus. He's always been redeeming, always been restoring, always mitigating the evil that wounds us. It's just, we have such dinky finite minds that we can't fully understand his sovereignty. I'll tell you one of the things I love about being 60, besides the fact that I get discounts at fast food restaurants is I have walked long enough with a lover of our soul that I can look back over my life. I, I gave my heart to Jesus when I was five years old, not because I was such an especially good kid, but because I was a scared kid. My dad left us for another woman and her son, and I thought there must be something I had done. I thought if only I was prettier or sweeter or used my inside voice more, maybe dad wouldn't have walked away from us. And during that time period, some men came and went from our family um, who did things to me in the dark that should never be done to anyone, much less a child. And so from my earliest memories, I felt dirty and I felt damaged, and I was devastated when my dad walked away. And so when Brother Jimmy, he was pastoring a new church, my mom had to move us to because I grew up not in Michigan where everybody's polite, I grew up in uh, Central Florida and some of the women in our old church disguised gossip as prayer requests. And after my mom went through the sacrimonious divorce, they started throwing shade. And so we had to move to another church. And very first Sunday in that new church, I heard Brother Jimmy talk about how our heavenly father never turns his back on his children. That if you put your hope in him, you'll never be abandoned. And I was so desperate to have a dad that didn't leave that I walked an aisle um, my mama is Baptist to the bone my daddy started as Nazarene, but he had a hard time with monogamy. So he eventually, after a lot of repentance, landed in an assembly of God church. So I grew up Baptist coastal, um, but uh, much heavier on the coastal in these last few decades. I love to wiggle and worship, but, um, but I came to Christ when I was five years old, just scared, slammed to death, but I was so hopeful that maybe, just maybe, even for a dirty kid, I could have a dad who wouldn't walk away. What I've learned in over half a century of being held by Jesus, loved by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, restored by Jesus, what I've found is that he is always faithful and he's always on time. He's always on time. I couldn't see it at 20 or at 30 or at 40. As I'm beginning to get into that season of life where I've lost my metabolism and my hair is chemically dependent and I need glasses, my spiritual vision has gotten a little sharper because I have enough enough of a journey with Jesus to go. He has never not, and I know that's a double negative, he's never not been perfectly good. It's just, I couldn't see it then. His faithfulness doesn't fall on my eye calendar, but he's always good. Uh, Pastor Sam said that much better than I've said, but this is just on the heels of that message. Turn to to Luke chapter 11. It's one of my favorite stories in Luke's gospel. and Luke is one of my favorite gospels. The reason being uh, Luke was a Gentile. I'm sure y'all know this. Y'all have actually got a school on campus, and I know we've got a lot of Smarty McTarty's up front. Luke is the only Gentile author of Scripture. We've got 66 books in our Protestant Bibles, and all of those, with the exception of a few books that we consider either formally anonymous, like there's some Psalms, we don't know for sure who wrote them. Book of Hebrews, we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. But all of the books we know the author of in Holy Writ were written by Jews, except For the gospel, according to Luke, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. It means the good news. It's a literary compilation of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So Luke, a Gentile wrote that one. And then Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And when they canonized scripture, that's just a $50 seminary word. That means when they collated all these books into a unified list, they inserted the gospel of John between Luke and the book of Acts. Now, for those of you saints who read through the Bible in a year, my hat is off to you. I always burn out in Leviticus. But if you get to the New Testament, if you make it to the New Testament, vault over John, when you get to the end of Luke, come back for John later, vault over John, go straight from the end of Luke to the beginning of Acts because he actually wrote those two books together as a seamless document. It's kinda like Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. And you see this stunning symmetry. Of what Pastor Sam has been focusing on the last month and a half and that is the goodness of God the compassion of God he's always kind even though we can't see it his sovereignty is braided with compassion there is no place his providence will take you that his grace won't meet you there he is a good God and you see that all the way through what Luke writes and Luke 11 there's a story. And you probably know the beginning of this chapter, even if you're a Christer and you just come to first every Christmas and every Easter, you know, the beginning of Luke 11, because that's where we get the Lord's prayer. That's where we get, Father Hallowed, be your name. If you grew up Dutch Reformed, you still say Hallowed, no matter what translation of Scripture you prefer. Father Hallowed, be your name. And then it goes on to say that prayer so many of us has re- have recited since we were itty-bitty. I think we miss the miracle in some of those passages that become so familiar. Because what I love now as a 60-year-old stumbling saint What I love now is the very beginning of the prayer. Remember, he's talking to the 12. He's talking to his disciples. And he said, let me tell you how you get to communicate with God the Father. I heard a podcast recently. And this woman started talking about how she no longer believed. That scripture was authoritative, inerrant for God's intended purposes. I know this woman, we speak at conferences together, but she has gone through a a very wounding season and she now doesn't think the Bible is is relevant or authoritative. Broke my heart to hear her say this, but she said, if you want to read the Bible, just as inspirational literature, she said, "Um, then just read the red letters in the New Testament because that's the only time Jesus spoke. And I thought, oh, you precious moron. That is not the only time Jesus spoke. He didn't just come on the scene in the New Testament. We have a Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's been there since before we were, since before time began. We have a Trinitarian God. Augustine says, now I'm feeling like spitting, so y'all are going to get wet. Um... (laughs) I don't really feel like spitting. I just get so excited and then I'll watch it spew and I feel so sorry for those people. I'm so glad it's not COVID and I'm not gonna like give y'all something um, except for coffee. Um, Now, where was I, Pastor? Okay, he's a Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Augustine. I love all the the dead theologians. I like a lot of living ones too, but I have crushes on these dead guys. St. Augustine says, only the Christian God is a perfect community unto himself. So Jesus didn't just come on the scene in the New Testament and start hugging lepers and, and blessing sinners. He's been there since the very beginning. Holy Spirit didn't just come on the scene at in Acts 2. He's been there hovering before the world began. We have a community as a creator redeemer. And he says, and I've always loved you. I've always loved you. You just didn't see it. So I just kept telling more stories through more people. Redemptive narrative is what he says over and over again "As I see you. I love you. I see you. I love you. I see you. I love you. I've made a way for you to be close to me. That, that's, that's, basically the cliff notes of the whole story. He's perfectly holy, perfectly transcendent. So I don't mean to, to offend any of you who may use more respectful verbiage when you talk about God. But the story is this holy, perfect, transcendent God chose, because he loves us so much, to condescend So that we could be accessible. You can wear champion sweatshirts in church and sit on cushions. I used to have to sit on a pew, brother, which was painful. I get cramps in my bahonkas trying to study the Bible over and over again. That's what he's been saying. The beginning of Luke 11, we think it's about the Lord's Prayer. It's bigger than that. Prior to Jesus, all of the other Jewish rabbis said, you have to approach Yahweh. You have to approach holy God formally. You have to approach him. First of all, you have to go through us. You can't even talk to him yourself. But when we pray to him, we have to say, Father, son of Abraham, son of Jacob, son of Isaac. There are Greek prayers from the first and second century that there's two or three pages before you even get to God. There was such a long address. Jesus says, let me tell you how you get to converse with a God who loves you more than you could possibly ask or imagine. And then he uses an Aramaic word, because that's what he spoke most of the time, because he grew up in Nazareth, and they spoke Aramaic, just like some of y'all still speak. What's the Dutch language called? (laughs) Is there a fancier word for it than Dutch? I heard some women speaking in downtown Holland yesterday, and it was just so beautiful. Jesus, given language as incarnate Christ, was Aramaic. He uses a word there at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. And you know what it translated to? Daddy. Dad. Father is even more formal in the English translations. It's a much more familiar term. You get to call the king of the world. The one who set the stars in place. You get to call him dad. And just in case we miss the miracle of that proximity. He in other places in the New Testament uses two words. Ho, petir." That's daddy, father. That's like you, you get it. Daddy, papa. You get two words. He says you get to get close to him. We make it about a prayer. It's more about Proximity. And then he tells a story. Half of Jesus' sermonic material was in story form. He's not trying to punk us. He's not trying to play us. He wants us to get it. I love God's word. I've spent decades studying the word of God. But if you're just studying God as a proposition, as something to build up theological knowledge, you're missing the point. The reason he gave us this love story is for a relationship. It's so we could know him. Just in case they miss the point of the prayer, he tells them a story. Luke chapter 11 verse 5. And Jesus said to them, and he's speaking to his followers. Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend yet because of his impudence. If you're comfortable writing in your Bibles, underscore that or highlight that. We're going to come back to that. In just a second. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give such good gifts to your children, how much more. How much more? Pastor Meredith will tell you that's a fioritory logic in the Latin. That means using something small to point to something huge. He says, if your parents who are wrapped in skin. Would bless their children and wouldn't give their children a scorpion if they ask for fish and chips. How much more, a fioritory logic, how much more will our heavenly Father? Bless us with his presence through work and person of Holy Spirit. This story, when we read it, um, sometimes we don't see it as big as God intended. One of my favorite scholars is a charismatic scholar named Dr. Craig Keener. I actually got to spend all day Tuesday with him at Asbury Theological Seminary. And Dr. Keener says this, if you get out of the Bible... What you are expecting to get out of the Bible, you need to raise your expectations. Always bigger, always better. We read this parable and most of us don't identify with it. First of all, he's talking about running out of bread. And unless you're a nutter who's doing keto, none of us run out of bread. If you do, you can go to the store, you can go to to Instacart. We have accessible bread. In this era, they didn't have refrigeration. And so the women in Semitic culture would make bread once a week, but they'd make enough bread for everybody. So they made enough bread for their family, for their extended family, for their kids' friends. They made like triple, quadruple the bread that they might consume just to make sure they didn't run out of bread. And I love the idea of that because I did keto for a really short time period until I realized it was satanic because... Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He does not call himself the kale of life. So I just think it's wrong, wrong thinking. But we have this story where there's this dad. And he's already got the door locked. Got the simply safe set. The kids are asleep. And his neighbor bangs on the door. Because his neighbor has done the unthinkable. In a culture that, that just had such a high value for hospitality. His neighbor has run out of bread. And his neighbor has an old fraternity buddy. I'm making this up. This isn't Greek, but it's real close. He has an old friend who's come to visit, but didn't text first. So when the friend gets there, he's like, Oh, crud. I don't have anything to give him to eat. We've run out of pizza rolls. We don't have any tostadas. I don't have English muffins. I don't have anything. I don't even have a frozen burrito to set before him. So he thinks, oh man, I'm being a really bad host. Let me go to my neighbor. They've always got bread. So at midnight... He goes over to the neighbor's house. That's the dad who's already asleep with his kids. This Yehu next door who's not prepared for his guests bangs on his neighbor's door and says, will you please get up? I need some bread because I have a visitor and have nothing to set before him. And the dad, Jesus tells us, replies initially, no, you big lazy stinker. Why didn't you bake enough bread? I mean, this is just unthinkable. No, I'm already asleep. My kids are with me in bed. And then Jesus says, he didn't get up because the guy ran out of bread, but he eventually got up because of his impudence. I don't know what translation of scripture you're using, but that word impudence, in some translations, it says audacity comes from one word in the Greek, anadea. And that right there in Luke 11, for those of you who get bored in church, but you have arrogant people in your small group, hang on to this because you'll get to impress them this week. That word right there is a hapax legomena. And the scholars here will tell you what that means is it's only used one time, only one time. There's only one time this word is used in the entirety of Holy Writ. As a matter of fact, it's rarely used even in other literary sources from this era. Josephus uses it a few times to talk about Nero. You remember he was a narcissistic nutter. And, and Josephus, the historian, uses that word to describe how cruel and despicable Nero was. Anadea means shameless audacity. It's a shameless thing. It's the only time. Jesus is the only one who uses it. And it's the only time you'll hear it in all of scripture. Anadeus. Shameless audacity. Jesus says he doesn't get up just because the guy ran out of bread. But because of his shamelessness, his shameless audacity, the dad finally gets up and and gives him some, some pita. Finally gets up, gives him a little bit of bread. I was in a hotel recently and I woke up at about midnight because somebody was banging on my door. I was there by myself. Usually my daughter travels with me, but on this trip I was alone. And somebody was banging on my door in the hotel about midnight. And I jumped up and I ran to the door. And I think I jumped up and responded so quickly because a few weeks before that, there had been a fire in the hotel I was staying in, like a real fire, not a fire drill. And all of us had to leave the hotel and go wait in the parking lot while the, the firemen got there. And I think just psychologically, that was still in my mind. But when somebody started banging, I mean, I shot up out of bed and raced to the door. But right as I got to the door, you know how sometimes it takes a while for your, your logic or your sense of reason to catch up with you. least if you have estrogen, that's always the case. And so, and we can say that you cannot say it to us. So (laughs) I get to the door and I open it, but I had the presence of mind to leave the chain on the door. So the door only opened, you know, probably like eight inches. inches. And when I opened the door, there was a man out right outside. I mean, I could see all the way through that crack, the, the full body of this man who looked, like he was in crisis, he was, he was screaming, and what he was screaming was, Laura! Laura! And he jammed his arm, which is pretty hairy, through that gap into my hotel room. And about that time, I heard what sounded like a female voice in the hotel room directly next to mine yelling, Michael, Michael. And then I smelled the alcohol and I realized they must have had a fight. He went and had one one too many sudsy things. And I thought, I thought it's, he's at the wrong door. He's tipsy, he's at the wrong door. So I just, to help him, went, wrong door, wrong door wham and I karate chopped his arm because you know you're just so flustered when somebody bangs on your door and you're I was just flustered and so I can't tell you that was biblical but it reminded me of this story because I can imagine the dad going no I'm not gonna get up I mean I'm already situated but then because of his shameless audacity the guy gets up and he gives him some bread And then usually, usually, whoever's teaching on this sermon or putting it on a flannel graph or doing something for YouTube says what follows is ask, seek, knock. So you ask with a little more clarity. You seek with a little more diligence. And you bang a little louder, right? And so always the takeaway we get from Luke 11. Y'all, it's so much better than that. It's so much better than that. I have that undeserved privilege of sitting under one of the world's foremost authorities on the parables. i finishing a doctorate at Denver Seminary. His name is Dr. Craig Blomberg. I'm the dumbest person in his class, so he has mercy on me. And Dr. Blomberg was teaching us about the parabolic symbolism. Doesn't that sound smart? Just means what the characters represent in the parables that Jesus teaches. And he said, in the parables of Christ, when he talks about a father or a master, or an owner, who does that always, 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 always without exception represent? Young, talk back. I'm not your pastor. God, always. There's no exception. Jesus teaches 39 or 40 parables, depending on which theologian you subscribe to. But between, let's just say 39.5, there's some disagreement over one of the parables. But Jesus teaches around 40 stories in the gospels, just the first three, no parables in John. And without exception, when Jesus talks about a daddy, he's talking about our heavenly father. So we know that the character in this story, Jesus is telling, it's not a Facebook forward. This is not an urban legend. It comes out of the mouth of our savior. He says, there's a dad and he's, he's asleep. He, he's totally situated. He's in his home, minding his own business with his kids. So that represents God, Right. Dr. Blomberg says that the person knocking on the door represents an unbeliever. Now, some scholars disagree on that. Nobody knows for sure. But I think that's a good hypothesis because he's outside the family. Now, in the parables of Jesus, anytime there's children in the parable, sons or daughters in the parable, who do they represent always, always? Us. Because we're the children of God. So where are we in this story? We're with our dad. This is first century Jewish culture. They didn't have 15 bedrooms and intercom systems and kids who text their parents to say what they want on Amazon or Instacart. The kids are right there in bed with their father. They had what was called the family bed. I was just in Israel for the fourth time a few months ago. Even today, most even elite wealthy Jews build their homes up instead of out. They don't have big ranchers because in Jewish tradition and culture, when their kids get married, they come back home. Some of you are like, oh, please, please, please jump to the next part of the sermon. My baby's been in my basement since they graduated from Hope 12 years ago. The, the Jews build build up because then when the kids go away to college, they come back and get married. They have an upper room on top of their parents' room. And then when their kids go off and get married and come back, they build another room on top of that. And, and so it goes. And so they don't spread out. In the first century, the parents and the pumpkins all slept in the same room. So the kids are with their dad. The logic that we usually use for this story is that we have to bang harder. That's not biblically defensible. It is about prayer, but it's so much more about proximity than it is about persistence. That's the entirety of God's Word. The theme of God's Word is always, I see you, I love you, I see you, I love you, I see you. I love you, it's, it's so much more about proximity than it is about our behavior, about our persistence. It's so much more about his compassion than our character. He's a good, good God. If you struggle with the last five weeks because you're in a really, really difficult season, I'd say there is a knot at the end of your rope and it is the closeness of God He's close to those whose lives are crushed. He's so, so present, so wildly, wildly present. I spent most of my life as a as a very, very scared Christian. I knew Jesus as my savior. I didn't know him as my liberator. I was always scared. I was always afraid I wasn't good enough for God. I always felt like I was too dirty for kingdom purposes. So I thought if I can just keep my head down and do the right thing, maybe God won't be so disappointed that he lowered the bar to let me into his kingdom. It took me decades. I I memorized a lot of the verses. I've been in vocational ministry since I was 22 years old. I went to seminary for the first go-round of my 30s and learned all kinds of multi-syllabic theological phrases so that I could keep you from looking under the hood of my life. Because I thought if I use enough language and say enough theological smart stuff, nobody will look under the hood of my life and see that underneath there I'm just scared, slammed to death. That a God like that couldn't possibly delight in a dirty girl like me. So I'll just keep my head down and work harder When he, because of his mercy, wove me into the story of my daughter after her first mother died in Haiti, he said, Lisa, Missy doesn't have an orphan spirit. She's going to be okay. You have an orphan spirit. You've been walking with me for decades and you still don't believe how much I love you. You still don't get it. You're talking about grace and you're still trying to work your way closer to me. And he said, you just won't let me hold you. I'm right here. I'm right here. And you're so busy trying to be good. You won't lean into my embrace. Missy and I got to go to Jenny and Levi Lusko's church two years ago. They have a church in Kalispell, Montana. And we were really excited to get to go to their church. I love the Luscos, And it was at the tail end of COVID. And we hadn't been traveling as much. So I was just excited to get out of the house. We live way out in the boonies. And I'd already cut through a propane line with a chainsaw. Um, Because I was... Bored, and I'm single, and my dad was a contractor, so I have power tools, and I just got so bored during COVID um, that I just started cutting down trees, and so I thought it's time for me to get out of the house. So I was thrilled they they asked us to come to Montana, and um, it took us a long time to get there because you know right after COVID how they didn't have as many flights, and so we finally got from Nashville where we live to Kalispell, Montana. It took like 10 hours. We had this huge delay in Chicago. We finally get there. And I'm going to be at their church the next day. But it's Saturday, late afternoon, when we get there. And it's just beautiful. We're in the mountains. We've got a couple of hours of, of light left before the sun goes down. And I said, baby, you want to go for a hike? And Messy said, no, ma'am. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, I saw some canoes down by the lake. Do you want to go for a canoe, canoe ride? Or maybe they've got one of those double kayaks. And she said, no, ma'am. And I said, okay, well, when we drove through that little town of Whitefish, I saw a candy store. Like they have this epic candy store and they have ice cream. Do you want to go get some ice cream? And she said, no, ma'am. Now, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I was beginning to realize my then 12-year-old daughter was, was not wanting to be close to me. And so I pulled out my piece de resistance. I hate hotel pools. I just, I just, oh, I do not like group water activities. All I can think of is all the bacteria and all that water. And we all know why they have to use so much chlorine if it's a public pool. But Missy loves hotel pools. And I said, baby, I saw a, a pool at this hotel. And it's actually inside, because it's Montana, snows there all the time. And I said, and they've got a slot. I said, you want to go swim in the hotel pool? And she went, no, ma'am. And it finally dawned on me that I was getting on her nerves. And so I said, baby, am I getting on your nerves? And she said, yes, (laughs) ma'am. And she said, is that disrespectful, mama? And I said, no, sweetie, that's not disrespectful. That's puberty. And I said... "Um, (laughs) Here's the deal, I'm gonna get on your nerves a lot more, a lot more often in the coming years. So I said, honey, as long as you're kind, that's, that's just normal, you're growing up. So I said, here's what we'll do. I said, I'm gonna draw an imaginary line down the middle of our hotel room and you can, you've got a little homework to do. So you do your homework on your iPad. When you're finished with homework, you can do whatever you want to do. Watch a movie or, or color, or do whatever you want to do. And then I'll stay on this side of the room and I've got some homework. And so I'll, I'll, I'll do my stuff. And if you need me, I'm right here, but I, I, won't, I won't bug you anymore. I'll stay on this side. And she was like, thank you, mama. And so for the next two hours, we were in that separate posture, polite, separate, then the sun went down. I thought it was time for us to brush our teeth, get ready for bed. We did that, you know, in companionable silence. Brushed our teeth, got ready for bed. She got in her bed in this hotel room. I got in my bed. She hadn't been in her bed more than 30 seconds, y'all, for my little girl, my miracle of a daughter that I can't believe I get to be here, mama by the grace of God, whispers, Mama, will you come over here? and scratch my back, because I don't think I'm going to be able to go to sleep if you don't scratch my back. And I said, absolutely not. I said, no. I said, you climb out of that window, and you shimmy down that water gutter, and you walk through the snow, and you go to the concierge and make an um, you go to the concierge and you ask him if you can come to our floor and then you bang on the door and you bang really, 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 really hard. Cause I'm not going to answer it unless you dislocate your shoulder banging. And then maybe then I'll answer the door and consider your request. Do you think that's how I answered my kid when she said, mama, Will you come over here and scratch my back? Y'all, my feet didn't touch the ground between our beds. I jumped from my bed to her bed, and I brought snacks, didn't I, baby? I brought snacks because I am a big old talker. I am verbose. I've got so many words. I don't have enough words to wrap around how much I love this child. And Jesus knew we would understand, at least if we were in the first century, He knew that some of us would understand as parents what it felt like when our kid asked us for something. And he says, how much more? He says, you don't have to bang. He's right there. He loves you. He delights in being with you. He longs to bless you. We won't get everything we're calling a blessing. I still don't have tight skin or high metabolism. He's given me things I didn't have the wisdom to ask for, things for my good and his glory. He is so kind. He's so present. The caboose to the sovereign mercy of a good God is his proximity. Some of you haven't sensed his presence in a long time because um, he's just been travailing through a difficult season. And some of you have been struggling through this season for very good reasons. Because the lump in your breast turned out to be malignant. Because you have a prodigal and you have prayed yourself horse and they still haven't turned and headed toward a home. Some of you never, ever, ever, ever thought you'd call yourself divorced. And the ink is already dry. Some of you don't even have a situation to wrap around the spiritual distance you feel between you and God. It's just you don't have the joy that you once had. Years ago, at first, you were the first during worship to be up here. And now, if you come up here to participate in musical worship at all, you do it out of duty. But your heart is just feels like it's wasting away behind your ribs. The promise of God to all of us this morning, every morning, on every page of that love story is I'm right here. I'm right here. What Jesus says over and over and over and over again in the encounters he had with real people like us, real people with real needs in the gospels was come closer, come closer. You're not an interruption to God. You're not an irritant to God. He's not bugged with you. The moment you turn, you'll find that he never left. Right, right. He's right there saying, I love you, I see you. I love you, I see you. I know it's hard for you right now. Let me hold you because I've been counting your tears since you started crying. I mean, he's, he's not just a good God, he's a kind God, so kind so kind, so kind. On my worst days when I was just a prideful poser spinning plates. Even in his discipline, he was kind to me. He never furrowed his brows at me. Even in his discipline, he said, come closer. Honey, you need to be held. All this lying and spinning It's because you're scared I don't love you. I love you, I see you, I love you, I see you. I know I'm a guest, a very grateful guest at first this morning, and so I have not earned the right to be bossy. I haven't earned the right to ask y'all any questions, Um, but I'm gonna ask one anyway. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes not to be spiritual, just so you have a little privacy for this question. In your heart of hearts, in this moment, this season, are you carrying more joy or more disappointment? Let me ask y'all to stand as a family. If you have more disappointment, more grief, more loneliness, then you have secure hope and joy. There's no shame in that. That's the human condition. All of the saints in biblical narrative went through seasons when they lost their groove, went through seasons when they doubted not only God's goodness, but God's proximity to them. And he didn't chastise them. Even in his discipline he bridged the gap and said come closer. I love you. I see you. I love you. I see you. I love you. I see you. Quit squirming. Let me hold you. It's in my presence that the disappointment will lift. It's in my presence that the anger will dissipate. It's in my presence that your joy will begin to take root again and bloom. If you're disappointed this morning, if you're in a season of grief or a season of loneliness, for whatever reason, and I'm sure most, if not all of them, are really good reasons. We are in the middle, we're in the already, Jesus has already come the first time and the not yet. We haven't seen the second advent. And he said, in these latter days, there will be groaning. There's gonna be seasons for all of you when you wonder why, why, why so long? That's why he gave us communion. He said, I want you to remember, I want you to remember, I want you to remember because they all forgot when they didn't have a flesh and blood Jesus that they could touch, they all forgot. If you're tired, if you're lonely, if you're discouraged this season, We've got some of the pastors and the elders are gonna be at the altar. And I just think it would be so much appropriate um, for all of us to linger during this next moment, these next few minutes, just linger. Um, If you're standing next to someone you know is in a difficult season, would you please be a safe friend and ask them if, if they'll come forward with you, just say, man, it'd be the joy of my September. Much more than all this art around town, the most beautiful thing that I can imagine is getting to walk forward with you and pray and believe that God is gonna restore hope back to you, that the season of mourning is gonna slowly but surely morph into a season of dancing because we have a God who loves us.